This is the Buried and Born podcast. Today's episode is from our series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Wisdom and the Foolishness of the Cross. All right. I really enjoy 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's one of my favorites in the book so far. Um, chapter 10 is the conclusion of the three-part 8, 9, and 10, which is a, hello, which is about, uh, which is about um, the uh, food offered to idols. But as you've been seeing, it's not really about food offered to idols. It's about the thing behind the thing. So it's a, it's a, it's a conclusion. It's, it's Paul's first crescendo before his final uh, crescendo, which is going to be chapter 15. Um, Paul is concluding his 8, 9, and 10 about food offered to idols, but he's also concluding his 5 through 10 about divisions, and he's also bringing to conclusion his 1 through 10 before he jumps into the, this last passage here, 11 through 14, how he's going to bring order into the church, and the crescendo at 15, which is the conclusion from what he began to teach us, that if we boast in Christ, then we boast in the cross, as opposed to boasting in ourselves. Paul says this leads us to what resurrection is, and so we have uh, chapter 10. So let's go through this here. Remember, we've been talking about food offered to idols. We said prior to this week, these are the things that they had written to him, that love is greater than knowledge. And then we said that necessity is greater than freedom. And today we're going to move on to participation is greater than individuality. And so let's begin with chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. I'll begin reading. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So right off the bat, Paul is going to immediately emphasize this collective nature of Israel's journey. You'll hear that five times he says they all. They all ate. They all drank. They were all in the sea. They were all in the wilderness. They were all together. So he, he, that's, the, that's his focus right off the bat. When Paul repeats himself, that's what he wants us to pay attention to. So he says all, 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 all. And he's going to say right here, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. This is his rhetorical device because what is Corinth's great pride? That they know things and they have authority and they can make decisions for themselves, right? And so he says to these people who know everything, I don't want you to be ignorant about a thing that you're claiming to know. And then he says, all of our fathers collectively together were in the cloud and passed through the sea. They ate the same spiritual. This is the story, you know, of Moses taking Israel out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. So here's, here's the story for those of you that don't know it. Moses took all the children of Israel out of the promised land. And when he did that, they went through the Red Sea. Remember the story, the parting of the Red Sea, Israel crosses on dry land, dry ground. And then while they're out there, God pours down manna from heaven, bread from heaven, and they're eating bread from heaven. And there's this rock and the Lord says, speak to the rock and out of the rock gushes water and they're, they're fed and they have drink and their clothes never wear out. They pass through the sea. Uh, in the daytime, they are sheltered from the heat by a great cloud. In the evening, they're sheltered from the cold by a great pillar of fire. And that's God's presence with them. And what do they do the whole time? Complain about it. 
right? They are more interested in the leeks and the onions and the garlic that were in Egypt. And they, for some reason, believe that the slavery in Egypt was less of a burden on them than what they're experiencing out in the, the wilderness. And manna is called manna because it comes, it means, what is it? They would look at the bread and what is this? They called it light bread. What is this light bread? What is this cheap stuff, right? What is this stuff that, um, that, uh, that God has provided for us? It's like, it's like my little Chase on Thanksgiving. After 150 hours of cooking, Chase ate uh, rolls. <laughs> and they weren't even rolls that I made. They were the ones that go pop in the tube. Okay, and so they look at it and say, what is this? That's, that's the complaining. Now, take that story, and here's what the Corinthians looked at that story as. They looked at that story as a metaphor. It was a metaphor for this seeking after wisdom. So the walking through the wilderness, the eating the food and drinking the drink, this to them was a metaphor for seeking after wisdom, right? And the blessing that, that you receive, what wisdom gives to you, Sophia, if you recall, Sophia's blessing was this cloud of fire and was this cloud by day. This, this is the protection, right? So it's this idea that I seek after wisdom, I seek after knowledge, I seek after learning, and Sophia grants me and blesses me with these blessings. And Paul wants them to know that this is not actually what that story is about. Because that's how they're reading the Bible. They're reading the Old Testament as an individualistic story and metaphor for them in their own individual search for <coughs> achievement and ambition and transcendence in this life. That's how they're reading the Bible. We've talked about this a lot of time when we have talked about or had lessons on how not to read the Old Testament. Do not read the Old Testament as passages that are meant specifically for you in your, th here's an example, when I was a kid, I played baseball on my high school baseball team, and I was number seven because I loved Mickey Mantle. And I remember I would have number seven, we had our jerseys and our, our numbers were off-centered. And I remember when I would bat, I would touch the number seven, because superstition for some reason, because uh, it's Mickey Mantle, I'm trying to channel Mickey Mantle, right? And I would, I know this is cringe and I apologize, but I would say the, the Philippians verse, I can do all things through Christ strengthens me now and Mickey now and, and Mickey hopefully <laughs> but between the two of them their powers combined <laughs> yes yes it is God's perfect number Mickey Mantle and Jesus powers combined I will have a high batting average okay um I don't want to say and I don't like using the the phrase uh doesn't matter indifferent sounds hard but Christ's Christ did not appear on the road to Damascus to Paul so that Paul would write something so that a high school baseballer in Illinois would have the confidence to not strike out, which I did occasionally. And that passage was not meant for me in that context, in that moment. Well, this is what the Corinthians are doing. And so Paul takes this passage and he wants to change how they're reading it. And so rather than reading the passage as if it was you seeking after something and gaining the blessings of it, he says all, they all, they all, they all, they all. He wants them to see the collective nature of this journey through the wilderness. And the point of that story was God's provision over Israel to take them collectively as a whole and bring them into the promised land. That was the point of the story. The point of the story is not Israel is out there naming and claiming their blessings and individual people are getting those blessings. That, and he said, you're reading it wrong. Well, then if you bring that into the New Testament, if the purpose there was that God was trying to guide them and lead them into a promised land, then you could extrapolate that out to our time that maybe the church 
should be reading the scriptures as God is collectively trying to do something with all of us together. This is not individualistic. He then closes the section that says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. I think I was, it was Laura had mentioned this a while ago. Um, the, in the Old Testament, when you're reading the story of Joseph, right? If you read all the Joseph story and you end with Joseph being king, you're like, this is a great story, right? But just keep reading because it gets worse for Israel after that. And Joseph is not really the greatest of the kings of Israel. And um, Israel ends up in slavery mostly because of things that Joseph did. Uh, and so Paul says to the story of you, you guys, when you see the uh, children of Israel going and having the cloud and the pillar, do you know what happens like at the rest of the story? What happens after they complain? Well, there's one story where there's a plague where thousands of them die. There's another story where there's serpents that come out, fiery serpents that come out and bite them and are killing these people. So he says, don't tell half the story. Why do you think that there was this other part of the story where these people were suffering? Because you're missing the true point of the story that's in the Old Testament there. So Paul says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Don't read that story. Go, look at this pillar of fire. We're, we're, we're all just arrived now. Yeah, and then you complained and then you died. So he wants them to see the failure that Israel had in the wilderness so he can compare it to their individual failure. So let's begin then at uh, verse 6 here. And now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. They were written in the Old Testament so that you would not desire the same evil that Israel did so you wouldn't suffer the same fate that Israel suffered. Okay, let's read what it was that they did. He said, number one, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Number two, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Then number three, we must not put Christ to the test. This is um, putting, let's, let's, uh, let's go back to Chase and the, and the rolls for Thanksgiving. We must not put dad to the test because he's already having to step outside and he's sweating from cooking and there's been a lot of work going into this house and uh, there's been a lot of cleaning going on at this house and there's been a lot of things happening in this house. Don't put me to the test. Well, every time Israel crumbled, every time Israel complained, what are they doing? They're putting God to the test, not testing his patience in the way that I just described there. What they're doing is putting God to the test saying, if you really wanted to prove yourself, why wouldn't you give us better meat than this. If you remember, that's one of Israel's complaints in the wilderness. You know what? Bread is good, but you know what would be better? Uh, some meat. Provide us some meat. You could do your magic tricks and provide us meat. And what is the, what are the three chapters that we're talking about here? We're talking about meat, right? So Paul's going to tie these all together here. So that's number three. They put God to the test or they put Christ to the test and some of them did and they were destroyed by serpents. And number four, nor grumble as some of them did and they were destroyed by the destroyer. This is a constant sense of complaining. So this is really what Corinth, Paul says to them, if you think you're reading the Old Testament and you've achieved this, this great understanding and you get life and you understand it all, and you think that now you have the blessings of God on you because of that, the truth is you're actually the other part of the story. You're the ones that had idols and sexual immorality and you put God to the test constantly and you grumbled and complained. This is what you're doing. 
grumbling and complaining, a sense of greed, a sense of always wanting more, putting God to the test. Uh, it, Paul has used that as an example of when we hurt other people in the church, putting God to the test because we're harming those people as if God's not going to come and protect his people. And so Paul says these are four things that they were doing, the idolatry, the sexual immorality, the putting Christ to the test, and grumbling. These things happened to them, verse 11, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, this passage is important because rather than seeing the scriptures as individual, it's just a book that I put alongside me and it helps me out when I need it. This book is leading us to an understanding of who we are as a people and the time we're in. We are in, since the writing of the scriptures, we are in the end. We are in the end times. We are in the time where we are preparing for the next world. And so if you are sitting back just taking things casually, as the Corinthians were doing, <coughs> life is all about me and mine and gain and gain and gain. He says, then you are not taking life seriously because we ought to be right now preparing for the next world. So here's what this is what Advent is, which we will begin next week. It is a time for putting our houses in order, our interior houses in order to prepare, to set ourselves up, to prepare the way of the Lord. This is what John the Baptist said. This is what the Advent is. Prepare the way of the Lord. Take that, those mountains and lower them. Take the valleys, raise them up. Make straight the path. Prepare your hearts. We are busy all year. We are busy in the summer. We are busy as the school year starts. We have lots of things to do. But um, let's take the kids as an example because it's the examples I always have. Um, as we get closer to Christmas, you all have kids or nephews and nieces. You need to know what they want for Christmas, right? Well, it, it, it gets to be December 3rd and December 7th and December 10th and December 12th. Look, I got I to gotta get this stuff ready and put under the tree. Do you? I, I can't wake up on Christmas Eve and suddenly you go, you know, I've decided what I wanted for Christmas. I had one of my sons this year after his birthday. After his, I'm not lying to you. After his birthday, say to me, I just realized what I wanted for my birthday. <laughs> and I said, I bought you a gift. It's past. We're moving on. I, I'm sorry. The, we, don't, we're not, we can't go back to that. And that's what, that's what let's take a lot of the things you're going to, if you were to, on, on average, turn on the television and watch teachers and preachers you see on TV, in my opinion, and you may disagree with me, you may have a different one that you see. In my opinion, a lot of what they teach is an overly individualistic, God has a thing for you mentality. And Paul says, that's not what God's trying to do. He's trying to take you collectively and bring you into the new world. So live your life accordingly. Prepare for the next world. Set yourself up for the next world. Don't cling to things which are not in the next world. That's what Advent is. Setting our hearts in order and anticipating. Beginning a life and a mentality of awaiting, of looking for. If you are looking for a king of righteousness and a king of peace, then we must live that way. And it also means that we put off the anxieties of the world, as hard as that is, because we are focusing our attention on the recognition, the acknowledgement that that is actually coming. It's not, it's not easy to say to somebody, hey, don't worry about that, when someone's worrying about that, because that's the nature of it. They worry about it. It's a long game of turning our attention to things that are true and real, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, Philippians tells us, and turning our minds to them until they grow into a reality, a stone, 
right? We were walking through uh, Macy's yesterday. Our tradition is to take the train, go downtown, buy Frango mints, uh, look at the trees and the lights, be too hot when you're inside and be too cold when you're outside. Realize that the train is 20 minutes away and your 17 minute walk run too fast the whole day. And Liam was standing next to me and, um, and he was like, Oh man, this is a lot. And I said to him, I said, the, the chocolate costs more than normal chocolate costs. And the train cost more than driving in the car and just parking. And the train took longer than driving in the car. And the food at Macy's and the food at the Chris Kindle market is way overpriced and overmarked. And it's too tight and there's too... But I said to him, there is a, there is a value in inefficient work that is for the sake of something sacred. And this whole event, to, to me, as I was doing it with the family was to create a sacred memory that they have, which is during this time of the year, we do what is inefficient, we do what is difficult, we do what is hard, because the meaning of all this is so much greater than a normal day driving the car. Well, I could just drive over to the Macy's over here and grab a bit of chocolate, or I can go to any store, I can go to Walgreens and grab a Snicker bar but it doesn't have the sacredness to it. If you read some of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, this process of, and put the on your thumb and put the blood on this foot and then dress in this and put on that, it's like, this is so inefficient. But we live in a world where we're trying to be overly efficient and really we should be focused on that which is sacred and holy and good because that's the real. All the other stuff passes away, but the real is real because it's real and it lasts. And that's what Paul wants them to see here. Then that's what, not what they're doing. So let's go to verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. A couple applications on this. Number one, be careful how you take the scriptures and apply it to yourself. Because generally, we like to take the scriptures and apply it to ourselves in a sense that we already are right. Like we match the scriptures and we will make the scriptures bend and wrap around whatever we do and go, this is the right thing. Everybody else is wrong. And the Corinthians were definitely doing that. So number one, take heed. Number two, it's probably good to, to lessen or stay away from presumption that we might have that we're always right about something or that we're good. Confession is important. Even if you don't, even if you're like, I can't really think of something to confess. It's good. I've read that prayer to you before. It's good just to confess. Lord, I have done the things that I ought not to have done. And I have not done those things which I ought to have done. And in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. And without your grace, there is no health that I have. To stay humble. So let us not always walk around with a pretense of we got it right and everybody else got it wrong and we're the ones. Paul said that is exactly what Israel did in the wilderness and they were bitten by fiery serpents because God does not tolerate that. That is not God's mission for you to feel as though you are superior to other people. He's trying to bring us collectively into Christ's new promised land. And so let's move on. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you see how he's tying it back to food offered to idols here? Why, why the idolatry? Why this conversation all the time? The idolatry and the sexual immorality, we said it goes together because it's very much about adultery. It's very much about leaving your first love. It's very much about leaving your station of where you belong. And then it ends up harming people. But Paul sees the idolatry of the temples as things that go hand in hand. The idolatry in the temple is behind the idols. We're going to see here in a second. Behind the idols, there is something else. Every idol is a 
belief. It's its own church. It's its own worship service. And it has its own order of service. It has its own version of baptism. It has its own version of communion. And it's always something that is anti what Christ is. So when we come together, we're baptized into the body. We die and we join into the body of Christ and his church. When we take communion, we're taking the the blood of the covenant and we're affirming it, taking it into ourselves. And then we're taking the body and we're saying we are one. Out Out of many, there is really only one bread, right? And he says in these temples, you will see they have their own sacraments. They have their own missions. And here's why. Let's keep reading it. Also, he gives them a little hit here. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. If you remember earlier in the chapters, he had said, you guys don't know how to judge anything. So Paul with the jabs. The cup of blessing, that's communion, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? When you drink that cup, are you not claiming to participate with him, his teachings, and what he wants? That's what our claim is, right? He says, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Are you not claiming to be one with everyone else in the room that's eating that bread? right? There is one bread and we who are many are one body for we all partake the one bread. That's what communion is. Consider Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? If you were a priest in Israel and you took the meat of the altar, here we go with the meat again. If you took the meat out and fed it to your family, wouldn't that say that you were a participant, right? Uh, Not everybody who goes to a baseball game who wears the cap belongs on the team, right? But if you got to go up to bat and you registered an at-bat on the team, it's pretty safe to say you were a player on that team. If you were a priest in Israel and you were eating of the sacrifices, you could say that your claim is that this one God is your God. So when you go into these other bits of participation, these other idols, he says you're also claiming to participate with those people. Now, hear me out because I know you're thinking we don't have any other temples here. What do I imply then? Thank you, Paul, for finally saying what you imply. That the food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. The food itself doesn't matter. Eating, drinking, these are not matters in the kingdom of God. But here's what he says. No, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, he has not mentioned this yet until right now. And here's what Paul tells us. And I believe this to be true. I'm a super... I'm a super uh, uh, mystic on these things. I believe in all the other stuff that's out there. I believe there's an entire world that we do not see that's angels, demons, spirits, and all the things that we, that we discuss. Paul says, in all of the idols of the world, it doesn't matter what they're called. You can call it Zeus and Jupiter. You can call it any pagan idol that you see in any space and time. Behind it are the fallen angels who desire for you and I to not follow, adhere to, and love God and our neighbor, but have something else for us to partake in. And in these times, it was a literal pagan temple. In our times, pick whatever thing that's in our culture. Behind everything that is not love of God and love of neighbor, everything, behind that, Paul says, is a demon who's willing to put on a mask of anything who's willing to put on a mask of anything and claim what the Corinthians are claiming, which is, this is good for you, and you're going to really enjoy it, and you're going to really like it. And Paul says, it is not possible to participate in the cup of demons and then come to church and participate in the cup of blessing, the the cup of Christ. We are either loving God and neighbor, or we are doing what the Corinthians are doing, which is exactly what the demonic forces want us to do, which is take, take, consume, take. 
And he says that I want you to be careful because whatever idol you have, it will follow in something else. For Corinth, it was very specifically an idol and it followed in sexual immorality and adultery. For us, it could be anything. Greed is a big one in our culture. Individualism, identity, and not the good identity, right? Where you could say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's good. That's all great, you know? I mean the identity that is at the sacrifice of somebody else. We've talked about this before, you know, when somebody does something to you that's harmful and you're like, you're dead to me. That's a phrase that Christians should never use, that someone is, is dead to them. And Paul is concerned with them on this. Now follow, how, look at how he closes this up. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we, like Israel, provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's how he wants the Corinthians to read that passage. That's how he wants them to, to see this. Now, we're going to skip over. He's going to begin now his second all, uh, um, all things are lawful. We're going to skip over that and come back to that next week. But here's where Paul closes up this chapter. Verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of the neighbor. I think I skipped a verse. Because it was like the most important verse that I was really excited about. Yes. Thank you. Let, uh, let, therefore, let no one... T- Man, I really enjoyed this part of the passage and I skipped right over it. This was the best part in the whole thing. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he takes, uh, who stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way to escape that you may be able to endure it. So if we're talking about Israel in the wilderness and they were disobedient and the serpents came, what was God's method of giving them a way to escape that? You know this one. The serpent... Um, the brazen serpent. Moses made a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, lifted it up and said, look to this and live. Which is an example or a representation of the crucifixion. And this has been the thesis for the entire book. The way of escape of the Corinthian mentality, the way of escape of the individualistic mentality of the cup of demons of serve yourself, please yourself is always the cross. Look to the cross follow after the cross, pattern your life after the cross, and it is an escape to what the Corinthian way of thinking is, but it's also an escape of the wrath and the the, the provocation of God. And so, with that, God is able to provide a way of escape, the cross, so let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. These are hard sayings. They sound nice. They go on the Hallmark card. Like, no one seek, but, but actually living a life where you go, I will not seek my own good today, but that of my neighbor is not an easy way to live. Right? Eat whatever is sold. He's going to give us three quick examples. I'll let you go. He's going to give three examples. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Listen, I know there are organizations in the world that are they don't have like Jesus is king as their motto. Paul says, don't worry about this because all things are God's. Feel free, just eat and drink and do what you, do what you need to do, okay? He says, number two, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any questions on the grounds of your conscience. Listen, if somebody calls you up and is like, brother, come over and have lunch with me, come over and have dinner, and then you get there and they're like, this is my favorite Buddha statue and I always put these rices in front of it and we're going to have a great meal. Paul's like, just eat it. That's fine. The food is God's. Love your neighbor. Charity is always more important. I was doing a thing uh, where I wasn't eating any meat 
uh, and I was trying to be really faithful on it. Um, and then I would go to my mother-in-law's house and she oh, would make this food. It's so good. And then Samantha would be like, oh, you're not eating meat. And I'm like, nope, the law of charity rules here. <laughs> law of charity rules. I'm going to eat the barbacoa. Let's go right now. Put it on the taco. So Paul says, let the law of charity, that's the most important thing. Don't walk around. If you, if you decide to fast one day and somebody walks in and is like, I made you this cake. Break your fast, eat the cake, and then start over. Because God's more interested in the charity than in the fast. So be charitable. He says, however, if someone else, if Ethan walks up to me and we had an agreement that we were going to fast and someone gives me a cake and Ethan goes, Jeremy, what about the fast? Paul says, in that case, default to Ethan. You're right. We should fast and put the cake away because eating and drinking, he says, doesn't matter. This is what he says. Let's skip down to verse 31. So whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, just do it all to the glory of God. Do it all for the care and concern of our neighbor. Give no offense to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that the many of them, they might be saved. Easy to say, sounds cute, sweet for a Sunday morning, but if you really think about these things that he said, be, be more willing to be defrauded, right? Don't go to court. Don't get revenge. Let things lie. Do the thing that your neighbor needs, not what you need. These are hard things to do, but they're the way of the cross and they're the way of, as you'll see in 15, do these things and reap the benefit of chapter 15. All right, next week we will go into our final passage, whereas Paul said, all things are lawful, but I will not be brought under bondage. Now he's going to say, yes, all things are lawful, but not everything builds people up. So let's do the thing that builds people up. Let's pray and go to church. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the people that are here. The opportunity that we have to learn and to worship. Help us to not participate with the idols that this world gives us, but to participate in the cup of blessing, to love one another, to live the life of the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Buried and Born podcast. We hope you'll continue with us through our series on 1 Corinthians. You can download notes for this series and others at buriedandborn.substack.com.